Congratulations to our graduating seniors and their families. Today is Pentecost, which marks the end of the Easter season. And while Easter and Christmas are our two biggest, splashiest days in the Christian calendar, it's important not to underestimate the essential role that Pentecost plays in our faith. Because Pentecost is the day the church received a gift that enabled and continues to empower its work in the world. And not just the church generally, but each of us individually as well. Before we read our first scripture for today, which is the lectionary text for today, we need to set the stage a little bit. According to the author of the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus had appeared to the disciples uh, at various times for 40 days after the resurrection. And then on the 40th day, on the day that he ascended into heaven, that's in Acts chapter 1, he gave the disciples their final instructions. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The implication being that it is the Holy Spirit that gives them the power to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then Acts tells us that the disciples remain in Jerusalem as Jesus had instructed them, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. We read that that 10 days pass, and then the Jewish festival of Pentecost arrives. Now, Pentecost literally means 50th, signifying the 50th day after Passover, which also happened to be 50 days after the resurrection. Jewish tradition celebrated Pentecost as a commemoration of the the day that the law was given to the people through Moses on Mount Sinai, which meant uh, that this festival was a pretty big deal. As we'll read, Jews from, quote, every nation under heaven, according to Acts, gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, and each of them is speaking their own native language. So we can imagine a cacophony of voices, a a bewildering diversity of languages as Jews from all over the known world gathered to celebrate their faith on this essential festival of Pentecost. So we'll pick up the story from there. This is the, the, as I mentioned, the lectionary reading for today. Now normally we would read all the way through verse 21, but I'm just going to read the first eight verses today. That gives us the the picture of what happens. So listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, and that means the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
Throughout the Easter season, over the past five weeks, we read the story of what happened after the Spirit descended, the story of the earliest days of the church, beginning with Peter preaching the gospel on Pentecost. So this story, if we were to keep reading, we would hear that Peter would explain to the people what was happening, telling them about what God had done in Christ. And these people uh, who had either not heard of Jesus before or maybe uh, knew who Jesus was but did not know what this Jesus character was all about, are amazed at what they are hearing and experiencing. And when they ask Peter what they should do, Peter says uh, this, which we read a few weeks ago. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that 3,000 people were baptized that very day, and the life of the church was off and running. That's the, the Pentecost story in a nutshell. The Spirit descends and gives the disciples the power to preach the good news, and by their witness, the lives of others are transformed. I think there are several theological points that Acts is making through this story. There's little doubt that this author is trying to make a statement about the universality of the gospel, uh, that people from all over the world need to hear the good news of what God had done in Christ, and that disciples have the power to preach this message to all people. In the first generation of the Christian movement, this was a central concern if, and if so, how the teachings of this itinerant Jewish preacher from Galilee were relevant to the world. We spent the Easter season talking about how the, the gospel of this itinerant Jewish preacher from Galilee is still relevant today. I think there's also a message here about the universality of the church. And this is the theology that affirms that although Christians speak the vast majority of the different languages of the world and live in the vast majority of the different cultures of the world, we are still united by our faith in Christ. And the source of that unity is the Holy Spirit, which we all share. All Christians everywhere are one in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a good word and certainly one that we should celebrate. For today, though, I don't want to spend any more time on that particular point either. The, the question that I want to address today is the, the so what question. The details of the Pentecost story, the sound of the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in different languages, you know, most of those details are at least vaguely familiar to many of us. So what? <laughs> What does Pentecost have to do with any of us still today? What's the big deal about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Greek word for spirit is, uh, it's pneuma. It looks like panuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, -E but the P is silent. And the theological term for our Christian doctrine of the Holy Spirit is pneumatology. It's a fancy word. It's an important word, though. For us... Christians in 21st century America, what is the importance of pneumatology? Well, that's our subject for today. 
There's an old story about the parents of these seven-year-old twin boys who um, were at their wit's end with their boys' shenanigans. They were, they were spirited kids who pushed the boundaries constantly. And on this particular day, the boys had broken yet another window in the house. They didn't, they didn't even apologize for it. They didn't seem to care about it. So as a last resort, uh, the parents turned to their pastor for help. Now, the pastor was not really uh, all that comfortable with being the heavy, uh, but he could see the desperation in these parents' faces, and so he, he agreed to, to give it a shot, and he came up with an idea. If he could somehow convince these two boys that God is everywhere all the time, and thus kind of always looking, looking out for us and watching over us, if he could convince them of that, uh, then maybe these two kids would be better behaved. He didn't exactly want to scare them, but, you know, fear can be a useful tool from time to time. And so the pastor asks to see the boys uh, one at a time, and Billy, one of the brothers, goes in first. Billy, pastor says, let me ask you something. Where, where is God? There's this awkward silence as Billy says nothing. And so the pastor repeats the question. Where is God? Again, nothing. A third time, the pastor, by this point, uh, a little frustrated, says, uh, Billy, this is a serious question. Where is God? At which point, Billy jumps up, runs out of the pastor's office, runs past his parents and his brother, runs the two blocks to his house, bursts through the door of the house, runs up the stairs into his room, and shuts the door. Parents watch him run by and think, well, geez, maybe we've had a breakthrough. And so they hurry home. They ask Billy about his meeting with the pastor, but Billy just apologizes for breaking the window, promises never to do it again, and says nothing else. After the parents leave the room, Billy's brother comes in, and he asks the question he's dying to ask. What did the pastor say that's got this guy's brother so freaked out? Dude, we are in such big trouble, Billy says. Who cares about the broken window? God is missing, and they think we did it. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Where is God? Where is God indeed? Is God near? Is God distant? I mean, the thing is, what we believe about that uh, actually can shape how we live in relation to God. These are questions about what theologians call transcendence and eminence. So to be transcendent, according to Merriam-Webster, is to be uh, beyond the limits of all possible existence and knowledge. That's the, the Merriam-Webster definition, beyond the limits of all possible existence and knowledge. To be eminent, on the other hand, is to be inherent, indwelling, profoundly near. And on the surface, uh, these two terms would seem to be opposite. Is God transcendent or eminent? To say that God is transcendent is to say that God is completely other, that God is uh, out there or up there or um, over there. God is distant. And the Christian tradition certainly understands God to be transcendent in, in one sense. The creator of the universe is transcendent uh, beyond the limits of all possible experience and knowledge. The God who raised Christ from the dead is indeed 
transcendent. We talk about God the creator. We talk about God the redeemer. These are theological categories that are certainly transcendent. And when we talk about God in these terms, we're speaking of God on a, on a global, on a universal, uh, what parts of scripture say, cosmic scale. But for us Christians, the question, is God transcendent or eminent, is actually answered by a paradoxical yes. God is both. Because on this day, on Pentecost, we celebrate another important aspect of our theology, the eminence, the nearness of God. For Christians, God is both transcendent and eminent, and it's our doctrine of the Holy Spirit that emphasizes the eminence, the nearness of God. The Holy Spirit is the aspect of our Trinitarian theology that empowers believers to live faithful lives. God is always with us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself promised it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Each of us has an inherent uh, power or strength or ability to live our lives as witnesses to the gospel because God is profoundly near to us through the Holy Spirit. There's a translation of the Bible that you may have heard of, uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message. Now, technically speaking, um, the message is a paraphrase and not a translation. It's not a word-for-word of the Greek and Hebrew into English, and it's in contemporary English. And because it's a paraphrase in modern English. It can be quite helpful, I think, as we read Scripture. I like the way that Peterson paraphrases our second reading for today, which is a famous passage from the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, in which Paul explains what it looks like when we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our lives. Because here's the thing. Even though God is near, even though God is eminent through the Holy Spirit, God's not pushy about it. <laughs> we, we have to choose to let the Spirit guide our lives, and that means, of course, that we can choose not to live Spirit-led lives. In the translation that I normally read, the one I read uh, in Acts from, the New Revised Standard Version, it's called, Paul refers to this as the contrast between living by the flesh and living by the Spirit, and that's oftentimes the way people think of it when they read this fifth chapter of Galatians. But the message paraphrases it uh, in a helpful way, I think, as living in self-will or selfishness versus living in God's will or selflessness. That is, uh, living to get my own way all the time, or living not for myself, but for God. That's the choice that all believers have to make. So uh, I don't very often read from a translation other than the New Revised Standard Version, but we are going to today. This is the message, and I'm going to read verses 16 to 18 and then 22 to 25 from the message Listen again, friends, for the word of God. My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit, 
then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so that you cannot at times live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? What happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. And at this point, he's, if you were reading the NRSV, uh, it would be the, the fruit of the Spirit, the, a list that many of us are familiar with. He actually expands on that list uh, in an interesting way. So the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity, We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything, is connect, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls the necessities, all of that is killed off for good. It's crucified. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads, or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. Amen. I think that when we make the choice to follow Christ, every Christian should ask, uh, do, I, do I really know what I'm getting myself into? <laughs> because being a disciple of Jesus if we take seriously his message, is kind of an all-in proposition. We have to, to love God with all of ourselves. We have to love God with our lives, which is an incredibly tall order. You know, there's an old story about a, a young salesman who uh, approached a farmer and began to excitedly talk about this, this book that he was selling. It was Um, an incredible book that this earnest young salesman was pitching, and it was on farming. And he just knew that this book would transform the, the way that this farmer did his work. This book will tell you everything that you need to know about farming, the young man excitedly explains to this old timer. It tells you when to sow and when to reap. It tells you about weather, when to expect it, and what to expect It gives you all the details of effective crop rotation. This book tells you everything you need to know, sir, and on and on he went. The old-timer patiently listened to this earnest salesman make his pitch. Young man, the farmer said, that's not the problem. I know everything that's in that book. My problem is doing it. So it is with the faithful life, it seems to me. The problem is not knowledge. (laughs) 
You don't have to be a, a Bible scholar. You don't have to speak Greek or Hebrew. You don't have to know the historical context of each of the 66 books in the Bible. Jesus said the entire thing boils down to loving God and loving others as we love ourselves. If we get confused about what living the gospel looks like, that's what it boils down to, those two great commandments. He said, and by and large, I think we know what that looks like. I mean, there are some exceptions, but for the most part anyway, we know what it looks like to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. The problem is doing it. But here's the good news of Pentecost. Here's why Pentecost, we shouldn't undersell Pentecost as a holiday. It's right up there with, with Easter and Christmas. Because the, the Pentecost story, in a nutshell, is that the Spirit has descended and gives each of us the power to live faithful lives. That's what Jesus promised. That's what the early disciples learned. It's just as true for us today as it was for the first disciples on that first Pentecost, I can choose to live the life of the Spirit because the Spirit is always with me. The Spirit is always near. The Spirit is eminent, to use the theological language. I just have to, to receive it, <laughs> to accept it, and to allow myself to be transformed by it. And what happens when we live God's way is that, as Paul tells us, God brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Now, Eugene Peterson expanded their descriptions, but the traditional list is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's, that's what we receive. Those are the fruit of the Spirit that we receive when we accept the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and allow our lives to be transformed by that power. Living lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit just may be the most important way that we are Christ's witnesses in the world. Like the wise old farmer, we, we recognize that there's a big difference between knowing and doing. But as wise Christians of whatever age, we know that at Pentecost, God's Spirit descended to give each of us the power to live our lives bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the importance of pneumatology. Thank God for it. Amen.